everybody. I, uh, I always love, there's, there's certain moments when I get to know who my church is, and one of those moments is today. So yesterday, my football team lost. Yeah, uh, and, and this, is, this is what I've experienced this morning. I've experienced, there are some of you who have come up to me like, I just lost my mother. You're like, I'm so sorry, Ben. We've started a meal train for you. Here's a sympathy card. We've got every, like, we're going to drop off dinner every night this week. Are you okay? Like, can you preach this morning? Like, you have been so gentle and so kind and so loving. And then there's others of you who have been like, Pastor, you suck, right? <laughs> uh, so I appreciate all of you. Uh, I just, uh, I get to know your heart a little bit sometimes when my team loses. So uh, I appreciate all of that. The church is funny. Our founding pastor, Buddy Hoffman, uh, here at Grace, there's all these like folklore stories of Buddy. Buddy is the guy as a pastor who said the things that every pastor wants to say, or at least the stories tell you that he said the things that all every pastor wants to say. Buddy was gathering when Grace was just starting. Grace was kind of growing in Snellville, and there was a bunch of people that were beginning to gather it's the early days of the Grace family of churches. If you don't know, we're a family of churches, and so we've got 10 different churches spread out all over the country, and this was the early days of the first church, and Buddy was this feisty southern guy who loved the Bible, loved discipleship, loved Jesus, and loved to preach the word, and just started gathering people, poured into the next generation, cared for them, wanted to raise up a generation of young people who loved Jesus, and, and so one Sunday, Buddy uh, was met after he had preached at the front of the room and, and some person came up to them and said, hey, Pastor Buddy, I'm, I'm really concerned. There was a guy in the back of the church and I don't know if you saw what he was wearing and he smelled like he had been smoking and I'm very, very concerned about him, Pastor Buddy, and went into this big, long, you know, thing about it and, and Buddy looked at the person and, and kind of said, well, you know what? I'm concerned about you is what I'm concerned about. Because I don't really care what people are wearing, and I don't really care what they smell like. I'm just thankful that they're here for church on Sunday morning, and I'm glad that they're here, but let's talk about your heart for a little bit. And then Buddy went on and preached the second sermon of the day to that person and spent some time discipling that person. Sometimes the church doesn't know how to celebrate the right things. Um, sometimes what we want is we want people to come into our place and we want them to conform to our patterns, conform to our behavior, conform to everything that makes us comfortable rather than us creating space for people who are far from Jesus to find a place where they can be welcomed and loved and cared for. My, my friend is a pastor and, and at his church, he's had this influx of all of these folks that have started coming to the church and so they created out in front of the church a smoking section. Uh, where people could smoke after the service, which seems like a good idea. People want to smoke, and so they wanted to create a smoking, so they created a smoking section, and then it created, the church went nuclear about this. There was like five people smoking in the parking lot, and the church lost their minds about it. I, I was a youth pastor, and when I was a youth pastor, I, I, I was in college. I didn't know how to be a youth pastor. I, I, I literally showed up to the church, and they were like, here's 100 junior high, middle school students. Do some things with them. And, and I was like, I don't, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was thankful that I had mentors in my life and people around. I was a basketball coach at the time. And so I was coaching high school basketball at the local high school, and I was the youth pastor at the church. 
And our church had just built this new gym, and we had this kind of student area, which I, at that time, we put all kinds of video games in it. Um, we just put TVs up everywhere. We played loud music, and we started an after-school program. So after school, if you wanted to come and play basketball, you could come to our church. And I had been coaching basketball for a while, and some of the players that were fairly good had started kind of coming and hanging out, and it started growing and growing, and all of a sudden, we were having like two or 300 kids show up every single day after school to hang out and just play basketball and run around, and with that, these kids didn't, none of these kids knew Jesus. Most of them didn't even know it was a church. They were just like, they didn't even know I was a pastor. They were like, you're the basketball guy. That's what everybody called me. And, and so they all just started showing up. And then all of a sudden, like, stuff started to happen. We, we was way more kids than we expected. We didn't expect two or 300 kids. We didn't really have a plan for 200 or 300 kids. We were just trying to create space for something to happen. And we didn't have enough adult leaders around. We didn't have security or anything like that. We weren't thinking about anything. And so I started getting phone calls like, hey, pastor, your entire basketball team is smoking weed behind the church. Can you come in and talk to them about that? Or, or hey, the, the fire alarm just got set off again because they're smoking in the bathroom. Like, okay, there, there's, there's somebody brought in some bourbon and they're back behind the church. It was always behind the church. They went back behind the church was where all the trouble started. Uh, there was one Sunday where they were like, hey man, uh, the, three of the boys set a bush on fire and the fire department is here. Uh, those are all true stories. Like all of these things started happening. And then the parents of the church kids started coming to me and being like, hey, we're not bringing our kids anymore because we don't want them to be around the fire bush starters, right? We, we, don't want, we don't want them to be around this kind of element. And, and there was this kind of war. And rather than celebrating that our student ministry had grown to be 50% of the size of our entire church, people were upset and angry and frustrated and worried and concerned and troubled by all of this. I wonder what would happen tomorrow if all of East Cobb came to know Jesus. What would happen tomorrow if all of East Cobb came to know Jesus? If just one moment, the Holy Spirit of God shows up, there's this moment of repentance, there's this moment of salvation, there's this moment of breakthrough, and every person in our community comes to know Jesus. I wonder what happens the next Sunday when we don't have our parking spots when somebody sits in our normal seat on Sunday morning, <laughs> when people are acting like they don't know how to act like they're supposed to in church because they don't, and they're carrying on in a specific way, I wonder if there would be people like those parents and like those church people who were frustrated by salvation rather than excited and encouraged about it. We've been walking through the book of Jonah, and we're at the conclusion of the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, you can open there today. And this is exactly Jonah's response to salvation. God relents. God brings salvation to all of Nineveh. We can put that verse up there. And then in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, this is how Jonah felt about it. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. I love the Bible. Have you ever felt displeased exceedingly? I was, I, I was displeased with my children exceedingly a few times this week. Like, I, I think there's those moments. Was, and he was angry. 
Salvation had just come. Can you, can you think of those times when you've been exceedingly angry and frustrated with God? When things didn't go your way, when what you'd hoped would happen didn't happen, when the thing that you'd prayed for and planned for and hoped for didn't come to pass, when God said go when you wanted to stay, when God said stay when you wanted to go, when God was telling you to do something that you didn't want to do and you were frustrated and you were angry and you were irritated, this is what's going on with Jonah right now. And Jonah is like the church people complaining about the smoking section. Amazing things had happened. An entire community, the Assyrians, who were the enemies of God's people at that time, had all just come to God. And instead of celebrating, instead of feeling excited, instead of experiencing the joy of salvation, the hope of salvation, instead of worshiping and saying, like, great are you, God. Let's get in here and let's sing these songs and let's really celebrate because salvation has come to the house of the Lord. Today, heaven is celebrating and I'm gonna celebrate here on earth with it Jonah says, I'm exceedingly displeased and I'm angry. Uh, I've talked about this a lot, but one of the interpretive lenses I like to to teach when I teach kids or students about like how do we understand the Bible? How do we know what the Bible is saying? Is we read a text and we just ask two really simple questions. And I don't care if your kids are four or if they're 18, this is a great way to study scripture. You read this text and you ask two questions. What does this text teach us about God and what does this text teach us about us, humanity? Right? What do we learn about God here? What is God doing? What is his nature? What is his heart? How does he act? How does he respond? And then what do we learn about us? How do we act? How do we respond? What do we do? How do we re- re- interact with all these things? And, and so today in the sermon, I want to just walk through chapter four. And I just want to ask that question three different times. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about us? And then I just want us to look at this text. And so the first time, here's what we see. When we read this text right here, here's what we learn about us. We surprisingly get angry and we lose our heavenly perspective. Isn't it true? Like we, it's so easy for us to lose our heavenly perspective. It's so easy for us to lose track of, 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 of the good things that are happening. It's so easy for us to get focused on the things of this world, to get focused on the everyday tasks that we're doing, all the things that are meaningless and insignificant, and to get so focused on the things of this world that we miss what God is doing, and we miss the work that he's up to, and we miss what's happening in the heavenly realms. And then so we get frustrated. And this is what's happening for Jonah here. And, and, and we know that he's angry. The question is, why is Jonah angry? Right? Why is he displeased? Is Jonah just a jerk? Is that what's going on here? I, I think there's a reading of this. I think I've heard that sermon where it's like, Jonah's a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Right? I, I think there's more going on here than this. So, so here's a couple things that are going on. I want to give us just three perspectives on why Jonah is exceedingly angry and frustrated. Because this whole chapter is Jonah throwing a temper tantrum. Right? Number one, I, I, I think one of the reasons, and, and, and I want to just propose three, or three different things, is this idea of patriotism or nationalism. So Jonah was a true patriot. He loved Israel. And if you read on in the New Testament, you will see that when Paul begins preaching to the Gentiles and begins saying the kingdom of God is available to everybody and not just the chosen people, the Jews, there is trouble that begins to start. Because there are people that wanted to say the kingdom is just for us. 
The kingdom is just for our people, it's just for this group of people, and everyone else is excluded from it. And so salvation is not available to the Assyrians, it's not available to the people that aren't like us, especially not available to our enemies, this nation that has fought against us, this nation that we hate, we don't want them to come to know Jesus because we are the chosen and holy people. And so there is this patriotism and nationalism because the Jews in Jonah's time could only see God's kingdom being established by the overthrowing of the kingdoms of the world. You gotta understand, Jesus' way is not the way of the world. The way of the world is power and authority and it's coming and it's taking over and Jesus chose a different path. He didn't choose to kill the Assyrians. He chose to love the Assyrians. He chose to die for the Assyrians. He chose to send his son to show grace for them. And God chose not to come with a sword, but he chose to come with a lamb. And there are still those of us to this day who want God to come in judgment, who want God to come in power, who want God to come in authority so that the people of whatever community or whatever people group or whatever enemy label you place on somebody else, those are the people that we want God to judge rather than forgive. And Jonah's experiencing this. From the very beginning, God said, go to Nineveh. What did he do? He went exactly the opposite way. He went way to the opposite way. He said, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want those people to know. Jonah wasn't afraid that he was going to fail. He was afraid he was going to succeed. And he didn't want those people to come to salvation. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus wins us over with his grace and with his love and with his kindness and with his mercy and with his forgiveness, not with his power. And for many of us, what we want to see happen is we want to see God judge and God's power rather than his grace and forgiveness. When I was a a pastor, I had just kind of started my own church and this guy showed up at our church and I had just graduated from college, and this guy was the guy, I think all of you know this guy from college. There is the guy that was, like, the guy that partied, and then there's the guy that went above and beyond that, and, like, the guy that had no morals whatsoever in college. You guys know who you're, are you guys thinking of that person right now in your head? This is that guy. I could tell you his name for some, I remember his name right now. He was wild, like, he I, I, can't, I can't tell any of the stories. I can't reveal anything. I can just say, you don't want your children around this guy. When he was in college, he's a, a hot mess. He shows up at my church, and he's like, hey, man, I remember you from college. You liked Jesus back then. And he was like, I just went to church, and I prayed a prayer of salvation, and I'm ready. Can I preach next Sunday? I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm afraid you'd take off your pants in front. Like, I... <laughs> I don't know what would happen. Can I help with the youth and the children? I was like, no, you can't get anywhere near children. Like, you, 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 there is no, like, and, and he kept asking me of all these things he could do, and every, my answer to everything was like, no, no. Like, the only thing you can do is, like, get on the floor and scrub, like, whatever the stains are on the floor, like, with a toothbrush or something. Like, you have penance. You've got years of punishment, right? I, I was, I, I, I had such a hard time showing grace to this guy. I didn't, I honestly, I didn't want him to be a part of my church. I didn't celebrate that this guy had come to know Jesus. I was like, this guy's scary. I don't want him here. 
This is how some of us want to, to respond when, when salvation comes or when something happens. Matthew chapter 6 says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom, not my authority, not my power, not the way that I want it. I want your kingdom to come and I want your will to be done. And if your will is salvation, if your will is mercy, if your will is kindness, I want you to show that to everyone else. It's so easy for us to receive the kindness and generosity and grace and mercy of God when we fail and when we make the mistakes. It's so hard for us to offer it to others when they're the ones, especially when those folks have wronged us or hurt us. Do you have that person in your life that's hurt you deeply? And inside, you kind of don't want them to be forgiven. You kind of want them to pay for the thing that they did to you. You kind of want them to at least squirm a little bit. Could they experience at least some frustration or some kind of pain for all the pain that they caused to somebody else? This is what Jonah is experiencing. Can we pray on heaven is, is, is in earth without resistance. We say your will, and can we rejoice when the will of God is done? Can we rejoice when God is working in somebody else's life? Can we rejoice when the church down the street is growing fast and amazing things are happening and God's doing great work there? Can we celebrate with them? Or do we get competitive? And do we get frustrated? And do we get irritated? The second cause, we talked about this on the front end, is just simply it could be racism. It, it certainly could be the case. The Assyrians were wicked and they were hated people by the, by the people of God. There was a long practice prejudice that the Assyrians had distributed to Israel. And so it would be natural for this hatred to grow. And Jonah just says, I don't like those people. I don't want those people to experience grace. I don't want this to happen. And there was this power that was gripping, and there was this challenge for Jonah to receive those people. But I, I actually think if I had to decide what the pro, most plausible reason for Jonah's frustration is this, it's just simply selfishness. Jonah was a prophet, and the prophet sometimes got celebrated. And you know those, you know those prophets who like to deliver a hard word sometimes? like, I'm going to get fiery here. I'm going to get after it. Thus saith the Lord, you are in trouble. And you kind of like it and enjoy that. Uh, I think Jonah was kind of that guy. I think he liked the idea of, I'm going to get some prestige and I'm going to get some esteem out of being a prophet of God. And you know what prophets don't get celebrated for? Leading other people's enemies to Jesus. Think about what happened with Paul. Paul, the greatest missionary. Paul, the greatest theologian. Paul, the greatest thinker. Paul, the greatest writer that's ever walked the earth besides Jesus. Everybody hated him. He was kicked out of the church because he started preaching a gospel that said, the gospel is available to everyone and not just the chosen few. Jonah wouldn't be celebrated when he returned home because Assyria came to know Jesus. He would become the enemy. He would become a lightning rod anywhere. I promise you, Jonah, every speaking engagement Jonah ever had in his life got canceled when he traveled home. The book that Jonah was about to write, My Trip to Nineveh, was not going to be a bestseller. <laughs> Jonah's podcast, right, somebody made a joke to me the other day. They said, what, what do you call three white people in a room? 
a podcast. Uh, uh, his podcast, his podcast was getting canceled, right? Like it's, it just, it was done. Like the, the, he, he was not returning home as a prophet that was going to be celebrated. He, the, the, they had this uncompromising hatred and animosity that existed towards the Assyrians and towards Nineveh. And Jonah was thinking, how would this impact me? What does this mean for my ministry? What does this mean for my role as a prophet? His identity was all wrapped up in him being a prophet, and he had no idea how to separate who he was from the task that he was doing. And and our world doesn't celebrate grace and forgiveness and kindness and mercy. Our our, our world doesn't want for those things to happen, and so Jonah knew my life is going to change from this day forward. So I'm exceedingly angry, and I'm exceedingly frustrated. And so finally, we get an honest prayer from Jonah, verse 2. It says, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, that you are merciful, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Listen to this prayer. He says, I said, I fled, and I knew. You ever get in that moment with God? God, I told you, I told you my way was better. I told you what this was, what was gonna happen. I told you this was how it was gonna go. He says, I told you, God, I, this is why I decided to run. I knew what you were gonna do. And he says this, he knew that God is merciful to the guilty. He knew that God was compassionate to humanity. He knew that God was slow to anger, even in the face of grievous sins and even in the face of atrocities. He knew that God was rich and faithful in love on those who were unlovable. And he knew that God was willing to relent from sending judgment on those that repent and turn to him. We start to see Jodah's real motivations. We've been asking the question, where do we run from God? And sometimes the most important question is, why do we run from God? It's getting beneath the surface and starting to say, it's not that I'm just running from this place to another. It's not that God said me to go, told me to go to point A and I go to point B. The real work of discipleship is figuring out why do we run? Why do we run? Why do we run from him? Why, when he asks us to obey, do we run? Verse three, it says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's anger is really deep, and, and these are the words of a desperate person in this moment, but it's a bit overdramatic. Are you with me? You, you ever get to the point where you, you don't get your way and things aren't going your way, and you start to say, well, God is, God's not for me. God's against me. God's frustrating. You start to tell yourself this bad news. You start to prophesy bad news over yourself over and over and over again. I was sitting with a staff person and I worked at a church in Louisville, Kentucky and I was sitting in my office with a staff person who had just come in and he was in tears and he said, listen man, like we, my family is completely broke. We are struggling to figure out how to pay the bills. My wife's been in the hospital for the last two weeks. I just had my third kidney stone yesterday. I'm in pain. I don't think I can do this pastor thing anymore and this young, like really good-looking staff member knocks on the door and, and walks in and he's like, hey guys, some dude from the church just bought me a sports car. And then he walked out and my friend looked at me and was like, why does God love Matt and hate me? <laughs> you ever feel like that? 
Like it's just, there's a, there's a tidal wave of things going against you. The, 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 you got a flat tire in the car. You got that phone call that you didn't want to give. You got that bill that you didn't expect. And it's all coming all at once. And it's all happening at the same time over and over again. And you're sitting there with God and you're like, I just want to die. I'm just done with this, God. You start throwing out all of this bad news over and over and over again. And, and what, here's what's ironic about this is, remember how much Jonah wanted to live when he was in the belly of the whale? That's, that's one page back. One page back, Jonah's like, thank you, Lord, that I'm alive. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your goodness. I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna do whatever you want. And one page later, he's like, I wanna die. Isn't that us? Isn't that how we respond to him over and over and over again. So what does this teach us about God and what does this teach us about us? The second thing we learn here is that God responds to our anger with his compassion. I, I grew up in a church that taught me that I could never tell God what I was feeling. That I could never express to God my frustration. It's like God couldn't handle my frustration or it wasn't honorable for me to go to God and say, God, I'm disappointed that this didn't happen. And I don't understand what you're doing right now. I think there is a way we can bring our emotions to the Father that is incredibly honorable. I think there's a way that we can bring our frustrations and our grievances and our disappointment and we can say to him, look, Lord, I trust you. I'm gonna keep walking in your ways, but I don't understand right now. Will you give me grace? Scripture says when we ask for wisdom, God gives it he wants to give it to his children. He, he wants to give good gifts to his kids. And so when we come to him with our disappointment, when we come to him with our frustration, when we come to him with all of these things, we start to realize. And he starts to give us some, some heavenly perspective again, right? Remember, we get angry. We, when we get angry, when we get frustrated, the bad news starts pouring in and we start to lose our heavenly perspective completely. We start to forget the plot. We start to forget what God is up to. We start to forget that there's something bigger happening than my own satisfaction and my own joy and my own uh, pleasure in life, that there's something more significant happening. Verse four, and the Lord says to him, do you do well to be angry? It's a great question. It's like a parent question, isn't it? What are you doing? I don't think, it's, I don't think God's angry with him. I don't think God's saying this in frustration. I think God is trying to reconnect him to the, to the heavenly perspective. I think he's trying to reconnect him to the kingdom. He's saying, I want you to reassess the situation, Jonah. Like, let's look at the big picture here. Let's see what's going on here. Jonah, you know what's a terrible evangelism strategy for a prophet? Is to hate the people that you're supposed to save. That's a really bad strategy. Here's what God's saying to Jonah. I want you to have my heart. And right now you don't. That's really hard. It's really challenging. In those moments where God is correcting us and rebuking us and teaching us and trying to change our heart, like what the scripture always talks about, our hearts are like stone. 
right? It's like, it's like a brick that can't be broken through and, and, and it needs to be softened. It needs to be broken in some way. There needs to be a, a, a new perspective and a new understanding of who God is and what God is doing because what he wants us to be is he wants us to be his ambassadors in the world. He wants us to be his spokespeople in the world. He wants us to be the one who carries his heart to East Cobb. And we cannot do that if we hate the people that we're called to love. We cannot do that if we see others as our enemy, Democrat or Republican, black or white. We cannot in any way carry any kind of hatred towards the people that Jesus loves. Or all of a sudden we're missing the point completely. Second Peter chapter 3 says, God is patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish, but wanting everybody to come to repentance. And he's not just patient with you, he's patient with every single person in our neighborhood. Every single person in our community. You know who God is patient with? He's patient with the politician that you hate. He wants them to come to salvation. Sometimes the hardest lessons for us to learn are the ones where God says, hey, right now, you don't have my heart. And I want to teach you to have my heart. And I'm willing for you to suffer a little bit if it means that you grow. But we become like Jonah. We become angry and throw tantrums. Listen to how it ends here. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat in it in the shade till he could till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah's like still holding out hope. Maybe God will destroy Nineveh, like he said. He's like, I can't go back because I got no speaking engagements. My book's not gonna sell. My podcast has been canceled. I'm gonna just sit here. I'm gonna get on this hill. I'm gonna look over the city and I'm gonna wait for something bad to happen. That's what Jonah's doing. Not very reasonable. Listen to what God does. It says, now the Lord appointed a plant. This is the only time in scripture where God appoints a plant. He appointed it. I don't even know what that means. He was like, plant, this is your job. I'm appointing you. I'm giving you this job, plant. And the plants don't argue with God. When God tells the plants to do something, they don't say, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish, right? They, they just do what he says. And so he appoints a plant. And he made it come up over Jonah so that he might have shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's hot on the beach, right? And so God says, Got his little hut, his little whatever he's doing out there in the sand. Even in our anger and frustration and in our disobedience, God has grace for us. He builds this little thing around him. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. He's like, hey, worm, here's your job. Kill that plant I just appointed. <laughs> and he attacked the plant so it all withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah until he was faint. And God said, wind, let's go. Heat, let's go. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. What does this teach us about God, and what does this teach us about us? We want comfort of self more than we want the salvation of others. Jonah is still throwing a tantrum here. We are days into this thing, and he's still out there throwing that fit. 
In verse 9, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I want to give you a heavenly perspective, Jonah. I want to bring you right back on track. You're terribly upset about this plant that died. But can you see that city right there? Can you see the city that's sitting right in front of you? And he said, yes, I do well. I'm angry. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished at night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city where there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? And I love the end of it. And lots of cattle. Like, if you can't have sympathy for the people, could we at least feel bad for the cows, Jonah? Right? He said, listen, you're upset about the plant. You're ready to die because of the plant. Look at those people. I need you to have my heart, Jonah. I need you to see. I need you to have a new perspective. Commentator wrote this. He said, there's no finer close in literature than this ending. This is the end of the chapter. It's the divine question. Should not I have pity on the world? And it remains unanswered. It echoes to all who have heard it, still above every crowded haunt of men, above the stir, above the din and the wickedness, the infinite compassion of God is still brooding, and we are the people that are looking out upon our city, and the question is, will we care more about the plant than we care about them? Every single day, if you know Jesus and you walk with him, we walk into this community as his ambassadors, as his representatives, as his prophets who are called to bring the good news of Jesus into this world. And the question is, are we so caught up in our plants that we don't even see it? Are we so stuck in our ways that we actually start to hate the people that we were called to save? And have we lost the heavenly plot so much that we're so wrapped up in our own selfishness that we're throwing a tantrum on the shore? rather than inviting everybody to the feast. And we started this question just saying, we all run. We're all runners. There are all of us have those moments where God says, go, here's your Nineveh. I want you to go there. I'm calling you to go there. Maybe that Nineveh is a place for you. Maybe that Nineveh is a specific person for you. It's that guy in your office who's annoying. That's your Nineveh. His name's Jeff. I don't know. Not, his name's not Nineveh, but that's the guy, right? I'm sending you to that guy. And you know, you know you're supposed to have God's heart for that person. You're supposed to have God's heart for that neighbor. I've got a neighbor that lives across the street from me who is the most annoying person on the planet of the earth. He's not a nice person. And he doesn't like me at all. And everybody likes me. And I work really hard to try and get him to like me, and he still doesn't like me. And my temptation is to be like, oh, golly, forget that guy. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to have my, your, my heart for that guy. The pizza delivery accidentally delivered pizza to his house instead of mine, and he kept it. And I paid for it. That's the, that's the kind of neighbor. And God's like, I want you to love the person who steals your pizza bin. That's what I want you to do. I want you to care for the person who's taking your pepperoni. It took a full half hour for them to bring the right one back. And the delivery guy was like, he acted like it was his. And I was like, yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) 
We're praying for him, delivery guy. Let's, let's start. I know I'm being silly here, but listen, guys. If Jesus is to walk into this space right now and give us a pep talk, I promise you he's going to remind you of his tenderness and his love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy for you and how he treasures you like a child. How he sees you, how he looks on you, it's going to be beautiful. But he's also going to say, and then there's all those people out there. And I love them just as much as I love you. And I love them just as much as I love your kids. And I want them with me too. And will you help me have a heavenly perspective? Will you help me when the kid burns down the bush in the back and there's a smoking section out front? And somebody shows up wearing something they shouldn't be wearing. Will you help me? And will you go to your Nineveh? And will you go chase after the world? Uh, guys, I, I, I've said since the day that I arrived here, I don't want this church to be known as the church that has an amazing whatever, an amazing student ministry, amazing kids ministry, amazing worship, amazing preaching I want this church to be known as a church that has amazing love. And I'm not always great at modeling it, and I apologize that sometimes my heart is stubborn and selfish. Sometimes it's hard for me to love what I know I'm called to love. And sometimes it's hard for me to sacrifice when I've been hurt, when I sacrifice. But I want this place to be known by our love and by our compassion. And my prayer and my hope every single week as I pastor this church is, Lord, would you just teach me to be as faithful as I can to teach your word? Would you teach me to be as faithful as I can to love well and to serve well? And would you do something significant in our church? So here's what I want to invite you guys to something. And um, it's funny that Douglas asked how many people have been baptized and all those things. We're doing baptisms in a week. Uh, we've just been praying for salvation in our church. I feel like the, the church in Cobb County, there's a lot of bouncing from church to church until you find the one that you like, but we're not really reaching anybody. And so all the churches are growing because people are bouncing around from church to church. And they'll stay for a few months until I say something that makes them mad, and then they go to the next one. But we've been praying, Lord, would you bring real salvation to our church? And so I just want to invite you to join me in that. Just over the next few months, would you just pray with me?